we began a study of Ecclesiastes as a university, or at least my team did, at, at that, the, the leadership team at Masters, and it's more than relevant for where we're living right now. Um, big idea. Ecclesiastes means assembly. There is the opening verse, a reference to the preacher, the Koleheth, the spokesman of God for the people of God. So the idea is the people of God gathering together with the preacher inspired by God to give perspective on life at the end of his life. So this is truth on life. If you want a big idea for Ecclesiastes, it's the revelation of reality. It's the way it is, not the way you want it to be. This is a perspective inspired by God to help the people of God who live in a broken world understand things you must understand. And one of the big ideas is you don't control life. It's like a vapor. Vanity of vanities. The word vanity is the word for vapor or breath. It can mean emptiness, but in this context, it's not just that you can't extract life from life, but you can't control, manage, or predict life. It's like the vapor of a candle. You extinguish the wick. The smoke ascends to the ceiling. Try to manage that. Try to predict where that smoke is going. Try to, try, try to control it. That's life. You can't. And if you try to live on that vapor, you'll not find life sufficient to sustain you in that ethereal type reality that we call life. Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4 says he was endowed with wisdom from God. That doesn't mean he's just lived a lot of life and has perspectives on life. It means at the beginning of his reign, God gave him perspective that a man couldn't have unless God gave it. Wisdom comes from heaven, Proverbs chapter 2. And 1 Kings chapter 4 says it gave Solomon a breadth of discernment that exceeded the sands of the sea which is a striking hyperbole to say the vast perspective gifted by, Solomon, by God to Solomon was unrivaled. Matter of fact, it goes on to say he's wiser than any man. So you have a person, Solomon, the Koleheth, the preacher, talking to the people of God at the end of his life, whereby he is expressing perspectives about this vapor-like reality we live in in a fallen world, and he's drawing conclusions that are very advantageous for anyone at any age. Because there's no guarantee that you can conduct, and frankly, it's improbable that you could conduct a kind of life journey that would be comparable to his. Firstly, you don't enjoy that level of wisdom. Secondly, you don't have that measure of resource. He was the wealthiest and the wisest. There was nothing outside of the bounds of his ability to acquire and leverage in order to determine what matters in life, what satisfies in life. And so you get the benefit of wisdom and life governed by God and sometimes not governed by the wisdom of God. So there is a school of hard knocks kind of life experience that Solomon can also bring to the table. But the net net is this is reality. This is the way it is, not the way you want it to be. This is the revelation of reality, not a let's pretend fantasy. And frankly, a lot of us live in a let's pretend world. And if the world doesn't work the way we think it ought to work, it frustrates us. We try to extract things from life that life cannot provide. And we get frustrated. We hold God accountable when in fact God has told us in this book, 
the wisdom literature of Solomon, this is the way it is. And you need to calibrate around it and focus on the things that you can know and do and release to a sovereign God the realities of what you can't control or do. So this is super relevant. So in the short time I have today, I want to punctuate. We started last week, critical Christian convictions. Critical because you got to have these. You can't live without these convictions. Christian because it's a worldview rooted in the truth of God's Word. It's what a Christian would think and know. The world's not going to discover this on their own, but because it's revealed to us, we have the benefit of it. So it's critical Christian convictions, which means these are anchors. It, it's something that I believe, like gravity. If I jump off this building, I, I, I really believe that I'm going to hit the ground. That's a conviction. I'm not going to fly, so I'm not jumping off the building. It's a conviction that governs my life. Critical Christian convictions for a crazy COVID culture. Because what has happened, and you you won't deny this, and I'm not going to spend much time validating this, but this is a season that unsettles because we've never been here before. And you know what? I said it to one of you this morning, and we don't know when we're going to get out of this. This is like a marathon. Who would have thought in March that we would be living this way in October? And then, go figure, what is the truth about COVID-19? The World Health Organization came out yesterday and says lockdowns don't work. Now, that's helpful. (laughs) Now, I personally don't believe they work, but I am not a scientist. I'm just reading the data and trying to live life, and... but, but. We don't really know what's going on at the levels we'd like to. And you know what? That's the way the world works. The first eight chapters of Ecclesiastes is exploring life's inconsistencies and uncertainties. With unrivaled resource, Solomon conducts a life experiment. And he concludes at the end or in the middle of uh, chapter one, really at the outset, he kind of comes out blazing, says, first of all, it's all like vapor. But he makes this statement in verse 13 of chapter one. I just want to punctuate it because this is reality on life. It's not meant to discourage you. It's just, hey, we live in a real world. This is reality. Verse 13, I set my mind, says the preacher, the king of Israel in Jerusalem, verse 13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven, life under the sun. But look what he says, concluding, it is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. So guess what he just said? It's a fallen world. It's a broken world, and it's hard It doesn't work the way you want it to work. And then he amplifies that through the next eight chapters by saying, you don't control anything. Chapter 9, which is where we're focused today. And by the way, I say that because we just did the ACBC conference virtually this past week. And I was struck by what I I did a uh, particular breakout session on depression, not a sickness, not a sin. I thought that was an interesting kind of title And uh, the speaker argued, you know what? Discouragement in a fallen world is not abnormal behavior. It's what Solomon is saying. Life's hard. It's how you deal with the reality of your life. I, I attended a church one time as a college student and kind of the cultural norm was you'd, you'd say to somebody, it was here in Los Angeles, big church. 
And I spent a summer as a missionary there. And you'd say to somebody, say, how are you? I mean, 90% of the time, the culture of that church was, I'm blessed. Well, look, that's a true statement. But somehow it didn't ring as reality, sincere. It was like a cultural uh, statement, almost a superficial statement. And, and, and I want to be careful. I don't want to condemn or demean anybody that feels like they're blessed because as Christians, we are blessed. But we can say things that don't really reflect the reality. They're just kind of superficial things. I'm blessed, brother. Better than I deserve. Well, no kidding. Do you you know what I mean by that? If part of the thing that handicaps our Christianity, in my view, and this is the other big idea for this sermon in the time that I have with you, is that we'll live in a reality that is reality, and we'll model truth in the context of it that causes a person unsettled by a world they can't control nor understand, find hope and interest in what you believe. See, real Christianity ought to be provocative in a good way. It ought to cause somebody to go, you know what, I I, I want to talk about what you seem to have that I don't have. Because you're living in the same world I am, and you're enduring the same challenges I do, and somehow you have a stability in spite of the depressing, discouraging, difficult, man, when is this ever going to end? I don't have a job. I don't know. I, I don't know what's coming. I want what you have. That's my big hope idea, that you could not only be benefited in a shepherding way with truth that will anchor you, but it will be truth that will provoke somebody to know what's going on inside of you. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, that's where we are. We did the first point last week. I'll highlight it, and then we'll roll. Chapter 9 begins the last section of the book where it's not exploring life's inconsistencies and life's inadequacies. It's explaining life's uncertainties and providing you some certainties. It's explaining. So this is kind of the concluding benefit of the book. Verse 1, chapter 9. This is Solomon at the end of all the experiments. I have taken all this to my heart. So I'm I'm reducing it all down. I've meditated on it. I've I've reflected on it. And now I'm about to explain it. I'm going to unpack it. This is my conclusion. Here it is. And these are five convictions, critical convictions. Here's the first one. This is what I know. Despite all I don't know. That righteous men, that is individuals made righteous by the gift of God's righteousness to them in Jesus Christ. Remember, you can't make yourself righteous. There's none righteous. No, not one. So I admit I'm not righteous. I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I know there's catastrophic consequences to my rebellion, small and large. I declare my need for a righteousness not my own. I need the release of debt that's justified, and I need a forgiveness, and I need a righteousness that's perfect. And I receive that by grace through faith. I don't earn it. It is not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is by grace. You understand that. It's unmerited favor. You want to work your way to heaven? You're not going to get there. You want to be a righteous person because you do good deeds? You're not going to be righteous. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. So how can a man be righteous? He receives a righteousness as a gift from God by faith. It's imputed to us. It's a legal assignment. It's true. Harry's righteous. 
Not because I perform, but because God has given me a righteousness that belonged to his son that I now enjoy. When God looks at me and when he looks at any Christian, he sees the righteousness perfect of his son. Can you say amen to that? Listen, that ought to make you glad today. Because let me tell you what, you didn't live all of that this week. Because you're a work in progress. He who begins the good work will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So my righteousness is complete positionally in Christ as a gift. And then I live out that righteousness by faith according to the truth of God and the ways of God. And here's what Solomon says. Here's what I want to explain to you. People that are righteous because they've received it and they endeavor to live it. And wise people... Wise men, this is what I know about those, and their deeds, the things they do, verse 1, chapter 9, those men, those people, those activities, big idea, are in the hand of God. Here's the first critical conviction. We talked about it last week. You've got to know this. I must live as if I'm in the hand of God. I don't control anything, but he does. I can't protect myself from everything, but he can. The last couple of verses of chapter 8 argue that nobody can discover the way life works. There's no metric and no no algorithm that's going to help you discover it. You can stay up all night. You're just not going to know. And if you say you know, you don't know. You actually betray the reality that you're deceived if you think you can figure it out. And most of us are not going to go on the internet today and say, I figured life out for $4.99, you can sign up for my course. Nobody is going to argue that because you know you don't get that. And Solomon says, but this is what you do know, big idea. This is what you can know. This is a certainty to anchor your soul. You're in the hand of God, which is a good hand, a safe hand, a loving hand, a generous hand, a providing hand. You don't know what the future holds, verse 1. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. You don't know the outcome of any relationship. You don't know. Anything awaits him. That's a fact. So what do you not know? What's coming? What do I know? The one who holds what's coming in his hands, I'm in his hand. Verses 2 and 3, here's the second critical conviction. Verse 2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. One fate for all. It's a reference to death. There is one fate for the righteous. That's a man who behaves in concord with the ways of God and for the wicked. So you can be... A good man or a sinful man. You can be a clean man or an unclean man for the clean and for the unclean. That's a reference to living out life in a way that makes you ceremonially pure. You're holy, not unholy. 
You're, that's actually the word has to do with you've encountered something unclean in a fallen world. It's not like you're out there doing wicked things. You just live in a fallen world, and in the Old Testament, you encounter a dead animal. You, you have certain discharges, certain things that happen humanly in the context of life. You get unclean, and God's holy, and so you need a sacrifice for that uncleanness. And so whether you're pure or impure, that's the big idea, clean or unclean, or you offer a sacrifice, and for one who does not sacrifice, so it's the same for the one who sacrifices, that would be the worshiper, or for the irreligious non-worshiper. Here's the double emphasis in verse 2, as for the good man is, so is the sinner. It doesn't really matter whether you're righteous, unrighteous, pure or impure, religious or irreligious, worshiper or not worshiping. Good man or sinful man, as the swearer is, that's somebody who makes promises to God carelessly, which you're told not to do, so is the one who is afraid to swear. That's the person who reveres God to the point we're afraid to make a vow that they may or may not be able to keep. Doesn't matter who you are, red and yellow, black and white, pure, impure, worshiper, not worshiper, here's a fact. The fate that you will endure is the same for you as for anyone else, no matter who they are. Big idea under the sun, second critical conviction. You need to, I must live life like I'm going to lose it. That's my fate. I will die. Act like it. Look at what it says in... Verse 4, for whoever is joined with all, excuse me, verse 3 rather, this is an evil. Now, it doesn't mean moral evil. It's not bad that everybody dies in terms of moral evil. That's the consequence of sin. It's actually justice. This is an evil. This is the, the word evil here means some, it's painful. It's frustrating. Good guy dies, bad guy doesn't die. That's frustrating. They all die. Sometimes, someplace, and you don't know when. Look at verse 12. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. All right, here's a big idea. This is the way life is, not the way you want it to be. All die, and you don't know when you're going to die. Therefore, Christian conviction, I need to live like I'm going to lose my life. Because I am. I just don't know when. It's like a trap. It's like a snare. Does anybody believe that Kobe Bryant, January 26, 2020, when he got on that helicopter with his daughter Gianna, thought that was the last day of his life? Of course he didn't. And guess what? The last day of your life, you're probably not going to know it either. And it doesn't matter how old you are. The young die. The old die. They die predictably or unpredictably. Look, when Hurricane Laura came to shore, Category 4 in Louisiana, by the way, they're enduring Hurricane Delta right now, a tree fell on a home and killed a nine-year-old girl. You don't know when your end is. Here's the big idea from Solomon. Live your life like you could lose it. David Gibson in the book we're reading says, the one thing that is certain, we treat like it's uncertain. 
And all the uncertainties of life, we treat like those things are certainties. Living life backwards literally is meant to say, I'm going to die. And that's not a morbid thing. That's a reality. And I need to live today like this may be my last day. I need to receive today like a gift in the gift called life because I have no guarantee. And it's frustrating. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun that there is one fate for all men. And then look at the end of verse 3. Furthermore, in other words, I want to add one other thought. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. And insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. You know what he just said? Amplifying and accelerating the one fate for all is the stupidity and the foolishness and the depravity that abides in our heart. The psalmist says that the foolish man digs a hole and falls into it and dies. We amplify and accelerate in our humanity, in our depravity, and sometimes our foolish insanity. One of our students at Masters uh, in July was free climbing in Laguna Beach. Some rocks, free climbing. Free climbing means there is no rope. I'm not tied in. He said, I got up 45, 50 feet above the ground. I got to a spot and I got stuck. And I didn't know where to go, and I kept trying to think my way through this, and I'm hanging on. I can't make the next hold or step in my ascent. I tried everything, Harry. I finally came to the place where I realized I'm running out of gas and I have no options, and the only thing I know to do is push off so I don't land on the rocks and hope I survive, which is what he did. So here's a college student, free climbing, which he had done many times, and now he's pushing off from the cliff to avoid the rocks, hoping he will survive. And obviously, because I talked to him, you know he did survive. He crushed his sacrum, he crushed his pelvis, the adrenaline, thank God for adrenaline. He said, I didn't feel anything until I did, and it was horrific. And there were people there, and they got the 911 people, and he got to surgery, and he's walking with a walker now. He may actually be past the walker because we chatted in August. You know what he said? He said, that event has shaped every day of my life. All the things I tended to overlook, I don't overlook anymore. I see them as gifts and privileges. And if you've ever been sick or you've been away or you've lost something and you've gotten it back, it changes the way you enjoy the things that you take for granted, right? That's what Solomon is trying to say. Life's coming, or death's coming rather. It's coming fast. You don't know when. It's coming for everybody. You need to live life as a conviction like you could lose it. Live it today that way. Third, well, let me give you an exhortation. So live life like you may not be here tomorrow. The life you have today is a gift from God's hand. You do not know when that gift is finished. You have it for an undetermined and short time. Live like that. Number three, third critical conviction. This is the downside of using technology. 
screen goes blank. Somebody asked me, one of the uh, security guys today said, are, are you using that to teach from? I said, I am. I said, how do you like it? A lot. Until today. <laughs> Thank God it didn't happen last Sunday night at church. Third critical conviction. So let's see how much I remember. Verses 4 through 6. Here is a third critical conviction. Let me give it to you and then we'll read the verses. I must, if I'm a Christian, I must live life in hope no matter my circumstances. If I'm a Christian, I must, as a conviction, live life in hope no matter my circumstances. Verse 4, I love this, so relevant. For whoever is joined with all the living, that is, you're alive, you're not dead. You're going to die, but you haven't died yet. Forever is joined with all the living. Watch this. There is hope. Surely, that's an emphatic statement, a live dog is better than a dead lion. Verse 5, for the living, ground or reason why a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know they will die. They're aware But the dead do not know anything, nor have they any longer a reward, for their memory is forgotten. Indeed, their love, their hate, their zeal, in other words, their life experience that's already perished, they've died, and they will no longer have a share in all that is done under the sun. I want you to notice, surely better. It is surely better axiomatic fact. It's not debatable, not negotiable. I've lived it all. I've experienced it all. I'm endowed by God with wisdom from above. And I'm telling you, it is better to be a live or living dog. Now let's talk dog. Dog is not house pet. It's not your lab or your golden retriever. Dog in this context is a reference to an animal that's scavenged. It was the lowest strata of the culture. Listen to this. No home, no food. You didn't have a dog in the house. Dogs roamed the street. They ate the trash. They tried to survive. This is the homeless. This is the I have no food and I'm looking through a trash can guy. I'm living under an underpass. I'm at the lowest level of society. King, a dead lion, is a king, the highest strata of society. I have it all. But I'm dead. Maybe I should say I had it all. Who would you rather be? Steve Jobs, founder of Apple, Pixar, multi-billionaire, died at 54, Buddhist. He's buried in an unmarked grave at the Alta Mesa Memorial Park up near Stanford, Palo Alto. Would you rather be Steve Jobs or would you rather be Steve, I'm just glad to have a job at Best Buy in Santa Clarita? Would you rather be the guy selling the iPhones for minimum wage or the dead guy who invented the iPhone, the iPad, and everything else that goes with Apple? Who would you rather be? 
correct answer according to the logic of reality, the, the living guy just glad to have a job. Why? He's alive. And life is always better than death. Because life gives you the opportunity for hope. Hope is the potential for something to improve, for things to get better. Hope is not passive. Hope is proactive. Hope is faith in an expected benefit in front of me, not because I control life, but I know the one who does control life, and I'm trusting him. I'm navigating through the difficulty in the hopes that God will provide when I need what I need. And whether I'm in prison like Joseph, or I'm in the belly of a fish like Jonah, or if I'm Paul in a jail shackled to a praetorian guard, I know that God rules and he's good and I have hope. And if I'm alive, I have the opportunity to experience life because when I die, my life is over under the sun. I influence nobody. I share nothing. I have nothing. I'm dead. And what Solomon wants to do is to say, as a conviction... I must live life in hope no matter my circumstance. I said this last Sunday night. I want to say it to you. This explodes the delusion of suicide. Suicide is a lie. Suicide is the assumption that death is better. This says, oh, no, it's not. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary reality, and and you may feel like you can't go on. You may feel like there's nothing worth living for. Listen, one out of four, one out of four, 25%, one, two, three, four, one of this generation, 18 to 44, has seriously contemplated suicide. Suicide is not better not according to the revelation of reality given to us here. Better to be a homeless busboy than a dead billionaire. Why? Because you have the hope of relationships and life experience and things changing. God working, not just in my difficulty, but in the relief that He promises as He provides grace sufficient for my time of need. Listen, the deception of suicide is, it's a relief. It's just better. One of the lies is, and I think the enemy's always involved in the contemplation of taking life which God gifts. One of the lies is is that it'll be better. It'll relieve pain. It's just better for me not to be here. It's better for me because I'm so discouraged and disappointed. It's better for the people around me because I'm such a pain. It's difficulty. All of that is a deception and a lie. First of all, it's not better from God's vantage point. You take your life, you rob God of worship that belongs to God. That's why David said in the Psalms, Psalm 7, Psalm 6, who will praise you from the grave? Whatever worship God would have received through your life and your words and your actions is extinguished when you take your life. 
You rob God of glory and worship that is due him. You are created. I formed everything for my glory, Isaiah 43, 7. How are you going to do that dead? You rob people of service and sacrifice and blessing. There are things that your life is meant to be in the lives of other people. And you understand this. Suicide is self-centric. We say it's, they'd be better off without us. The fact is they're never better off without us. I've buried too many people that have committed suicide. It is the most confusing, challenging, destructive experiences a human being can have. I buried an attorney in my church who I baptized. He came to wonderful transformation in Christ. And for eight years, he had been an alcoholic, and God saved him, and it transformed him. And he was just a different man, very gifted man. I baptized him. I watched him grow and was able to observe the fruit of his life and ministry. And on one Saturday in January, he went down to his law firm, sat in his car, and he took his life. Let me tell you, if you ever sit with people that have experienced a loss like that, you will know it's not better for them. It's a kind of pain that's undescribable or indescribable, immeasurable. The guy who took his life every Christmas, this is a true statement, went down to the streets of Birmingham with dozens of winter garments and gave those garments out to the homeless. Who's doing that now? If you're not here, you're not doing what God has prescribed that you can do and those that you have invested in and a Christian should be investing in people are robbed of what your life could have been the encouragement you could have offered as a friend, the kindness you could have displayed. It never diminishes pain. It amplifies it. And the the consequences are hidden by the enemy and by the blindness of the deception that goes with self-murder. Listen, if you're not a Christian and you kill yourself, the net effect is hell. That's not an escape to something better. That's not relief. That's eternal loss. If you're a Christian and you take your life, there's regret. Listen, you're not in your right mind when those kind of events happen, obviously. I had a pastor ask me about the gentleman I just described. He sat in my office and he said, do you think he's with the Lord? Do you think he's in heaven? Because he knew of his testimony. I said, well, it just depends. It depends on what you believe about how you get to heaven. If you believe you go to heaven because you're performing well until the end, because that's the big idea with suicide. It's not that you can't murder because there are people in heaven who have murdered. David was a murderer. Paul was a murderer by association. You've got people in heaven who have murdered, but the idea with suicide is if I self-murder, I don't have time to get, get it dealt with. I don't have time to confess it. It's the last act that I've done. Therefore, I must be in hell. Well, hold it. Do I perform to get righteousness from God? 
Yes or no? I don't. It's a gift, remember? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. My righteousness is gifted to me. I didn't perform to get it, and I don't perform to keep it. I didn't. I got it by grace, and I enjoy it by grace. Can you say amen to that? You know what's going to happen to you when you die? You're going to die a sinner. It may not be murder, but you will have come up short of the expectations of God for your life. But I'll tell you what, you can be saved and go to heaven and don't think that's a good thing. We just talked about why it isn't. But when you get to heaven, you'll regret that you've terminated something that God has given to you, which is life to be used for his glory and the blessings of others. It's not better. Better to be a living dog than a dead lion. Number four, under the truth, under the sun truth, number four, I must, here it is, I'll give it to you and then we'll read it. I must live and enjoy, key words, everyday life. I must live and enjoy everyday life with the special people in my life. Verse 7, do you see this? Go then. You know what go then is? It's a proactive choice. Despite the fact that you're going to die, despite the fact that you don't understand how life works, despite the fact that you can be trying really hard and your life can be ended sooner rather than later, go then. Eat your bread in happiness. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Eat with happiness. Drink with cheer. Watch verse 7. For God has already approved your works. Now, there's two ways to understand God approving your works. Number one is he approves the fact that you enjoy a good meal He approves of the fact that you're to extract blessing and benefit and be happy at meals, eating and drinking. But I don't believe that's the force of this statement. Because the whole idea here is there's a whole lot you don't control, but God does. And I'm going to argue that God's approval of your work is not that he's certifying what you're doing right now, but he's already validated and certified what you will do in life in the big things you don't control. Ephesians chapter 2 says, we are God's workmanship. And in his work... He has prepared beforehand work that we should walk in. He has prepared and approved of the big things in life that I need to walk into. All the stuff you don't control, whether I'll be married, where I'll work, whether I'll get the contract, won't get the contract, all of the stuff of life that you know you can't control based on Solomon's statements because of the nature of life, God is already predetermined. He's working everything according to his good pleasure. 
His will is a good, acceptable, and perfect. And just like your salvation is ordained by a sovereign God out of love, every major asset and factor and facet of my life is defined by God. Don't sweat those things. You're going to get into the college? You're going to win the championship? How do you know? I mean, part of what the later part of this chapter said is the race doesn't go to the swift. You can be faster than the other guys and still not win the race. You can be better qualified for the job than the guys or gals competing with you for the job. And you don't get the job. Why? Because you're not in control. But I'll tell you what you can choose to do. You can choose to rejoice in the gift of little things and not get fixated on the big things. Enjoy meals. Because God's approved the big things. Enjoy the small things. I must live and enjoy everyday life with the special people that God has put in my life. Let me tell you something. Meals matter. I'm an American. I can eat standing up. And if I don't have a lunch appointment, I do a protein bar and I keep on working. I was in Macedonia as a missionary pastor and we had a dinner engagement with a family in this newly planted church. Do you know how long a Macedonian meal is? It was three plus hours. There were seven courses. I said to my host, I said, what is that? That's the culture. This is like, this is valuable. This is time and community and fellowship and relationship. You know what Solomon would say to that? Amen and amen. Verse 8, let your clothes be white. That's festive garb. It was used at weddings, not funeral garb, black. Let your clothes be white all the time. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That's fragrance. Look good and smell good and be happy. Buy yourself a life's good t-shirt. You know, in our culture, you got people dressing like in black and sadness and despair. And I guess that means somebody wants into our group. The bottom line is, Eat, drink with joy with the people in your life, with joy and happiness. Verse 9, enjoy life with the woman, and I'm going to say people, woman being put if you're married for the person who's special to you, but all the people. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. That's the word vanity or breath which he has given to you, God has given as a gift for you under the sun for this. These simple things, this is your reward in life and in all your toil which you have labored under the sun. So listen, take advantage of the time you have with the people you love. Enjoy fellowship, relationship, food, dress up, smell good, engage, be present, and don't overlook the stuff that matters. This is valuable. Verse 10, final verse, fifth conviction. Live, I must live life all out. Verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. That's the grave where you're going. Hey, listen, you're alive today. That's a gift. Whatever you choose to do today, all in because this might be the last day you get to do it. 
I was watching a special, and I'll close with this, a special on television about artificial intelligence, and they were highlighting a guy by the name of Dennis Shaw. Dennis played middle linebacker for the Tennessee Titans professional football. He was all everything in high school. He was all everything in college. He gets to the NFL. He becomes an all-pro, and at the age of 34, he gets ALS which is a nervous disorder. They don't know how you get it. They don't know how to cure it. Your, your nerves deteriorate. You end up typically suffocating because you're, you don't have the muscle control to breathe. Here's a guy in the prime of life who gets a diagnosis he didn't expect. He's laying in bed with a tube and he's got a voice thing to help him talk. And in essence, he's saying, take advantage of every opportunity you have because you don't know when those opportunities are over. Give it all you've got while you've got it. Live it all full out, all in, fully present. Live life as a gift. You know why? Because it is a gift. And let God take care of what you can't control. Can you say amen to that? All right. Father, thanks for the time today. Thank you for the truth of your word. And as we dismiss and we head to church, I pray that we would calibrate around things that are true. We got to live life like we could lose it. We got to live life and hope no matter our circumstances. Well, we got to live and enjoy everyday life with the special people in our life. It's a gift from God. It's our reward. Help us to capitalize on it because we know we're in your hands Help us to give everything we've got, not passive, but proactive, because this is a limited showing. Help us to live that way to the glory of God, to the end that people who don't know God will want to know the God we know. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. God bless you.